Hello and welcome to the Block Solid Podcast, where we talk about the evolution of the property market, the newest technologies that enhance and revolutionize the world of real estate as we know it, and how we, the owners, the buyers, the renters, the investors, and the entrepreneurs can benefit from it all. Anya El Tamar, co-CEO and co-founder of SolidBlock, pioneer in real estate organization, and I'd like to welcome my friend Mirab Harrell as my special guest on today's episode. Hi Mirab, how are you doing? Hi El, so exciting to be here and to seeing you. How oh, are I'm, you? I'm amazing, thank you. I just saw you in Dubai. And now, yeah, I know. We met in Dubai. Now we're meeting here in Tel Aviv. Well, right. So, what's the next destination now that we're open? For Saloniki. You? My next one is Saloniki. You have a date? Yeah, I have a lecture invited to talk about our stuff there. That is amazing. What are you going to talk about? I haven't decided yet. You know, every lecture that I give is kind of different because the changes in, I say, in our ecosystem are so fast that any lecture that I make now is actually kind of like old, outdated. Two weeks later. That's I had true. this really funny situation uh, last year before the pandemic, right? It was last year, right? Or two years ago. I was invited to give 11 lectures in nine countries in four weeks. Wow. Okay. And the second lecture was the same lecture. It was the same subject as I think the fourth of the fifth one, which was just a week and a half after that. Okay. And when I was on the plane, it was to Budapest, right? To give the same lecture that I gave in London a few weeks earlier. You know, I kind of like open stuff and to see what's happening. And that was exactly the time that Libra kind of like got steamed from the regulators and everything kind of like went kaput and, you know, all the partners in the Libra project and the 27 partners left the whole project and stuff like one by one. And instead of being like, I was planning the day before the lecture to be, you know, travel around Budapest, go to the Springs and everything. I had to sit down and redo the whole lecture. (laughs) So every time it's different, I just understood that every lecture is going to be completely different than the other one. That's a great approach. So you're so inspirational to me. In fact, you were chosen one of the 100 most inspirational women in blockchain. And you have 20 years of experience in finance and tech. You're a recognized expert in fintech, blockchain, digital transformation, disruption, investment, trading, whatnot. The last lecture that I, well, not the last, but probably one of the most interesting lectures that I found that you did was on these big companies, big corporations, and their ability to actually take on finance, right? Because finance is done by anyone today, banks, you know, individuals even, right? And you talked about Facebook. I remember you talking about how, you know, Facebook can easily just now offer financial services and, you know, get licensed. And Google and Apple and Amazon. Right. And actually, when I was started talking about this, I think it was like four years ago, it seemed like something that's really far-fetched in the future. I think that now all of us are kind of like living with naturally. I mean, you have Apple Pay, you have Google Pay, you know, there's, you know, what we just spoke about Libra and it's changing its name into DM and it has become natural that finance is not a domain that's strictly, I'd say, created and utilized by traditional financial institutions. We're all used to neobanks and new competitors that, you know, 10 years ago, everybody would say, what, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. And now they're kind of like part of our life and then we use them and they seem so natural. Absolutely. Sometimes you don't even know who's behind like the actual financial tech, right? Because you have in the absence of blockchain world and traditional world, you may have like a chain of banks and financial institutions behind it. And, you know, you have the interface that's a different company, right? And that it kind of makes yeah, completely. it more complicated and expensive. And of course, you know, if you have blockchain solutions, that would simplify a lot of that, right? 
Yeah. yeah, let's say Google, I think it was like half a year ago, came out and created a front, like a Google bank sort of front. And in the background behind it are actually the banks that we all know. So that means that users could theoretically go into their bank account through a Google interface and they could access their different bank accounts and different, you know, I'd say backstage players. The banks have become like what? Backstage players and get the stuff that they need from their bank. And I think that we're kind of like seeing a shift into that kind of direction because the ability of the tech companies and even I'd say new banks and startups is so much more advanced than what the banks themselves can do. I mean, in, in, in you know, in regards to speed mostly yeah. and innovation, yeah. because you know, banks have a certain kind of DNA, which is kind of like embedded into them for 150 years. And, you know, they want to be innovative. They want they understand their need to move ahead. But, you know, it's kind of like hard to change the DNA of a company that's 150 years old. And the DNA has to do with the people that are hired by these big banks, right? Because who would you want to work with your money? You would want people that are very ethical and very, you know, like you could trust them. And not, I'd say, innovative people that kind of like move things really fast and might lose somebody's money. You want that slow pace. You want them to be regulatory. You want them to be compliant. And it's kind of like the opposite of what innovation needs. And these two disciplines, you know, they have like the finding the balance between that is not that easy. So I think that's part of the challenge that the banks have with kind of moving ahead with tech. That's a mm-hmm. good point. But then you see a lot of these digital banks popping up, right? And yeah. some of them are very crypto friendly even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's mm-hmm. very interesting how the whole role is shifting and there's an evolution of our financial institutions. You know, hopefully yeah. one day you can be your own investment bank, right? So that's what we're kind of hoping to do with SolidBlock, you know, invest in your own projects, create your own projects, create your own yeah. ETFs based on real assets, you know, create your own economy in a way. So, yeah. I mean, you can create money today, so why not create the rest of the services? I mean, I don't know if our listeners are aware of this, that technically today, any one of us could create their own currency. There could be a Yael currency, a Mirav currency. You know, it's not just the Libra and big companies that have the ability to do that. Technologically, any person anywhere or anybody could create their own money. It's not that, you know, I think that we're not at the point yet where we know what the use case for regular people is. I mean, what will we do with the Mayrav token or with the L token? The business case has not yet been developed, right? But yeah. technologically, it's there, okay? Yeah. So if you can create the money, why can you not create your own little system? I've seen that use case being very useful actually for identity, right? You can create your digital identity that then you can lend it out, you know, or give it out to banks and other type of online entities that can easily recognize who you are, right? So like instead of KYC, instead of doing a KYC, so your yeah. KYC is kind of like safe well, there and stuff like that. Also that, and also like medical records, it's called DI, mm. centralized ID, right? Yeah, that's but, a good idea. Yeah. So the fact that matters is that not everybody needs to see your all of your identity, right? Some right. Some, you know, like employers, for example, you don't want them to see see your medical reports. Yeah. Yeah, But you may want for them to see who your insurance company is, you know, which claims Mm -hmm. you filed, you know, Mm -hmm. and you work, you know, compensation and things like that. And the bank, the same. You don't want the bank to see who your other banks are. You know, they they may need to see any outstanding loans, but they don't need to see everything. But, you know, you know, this kind of like, I really like that this kind of idea because, I think that if we're looking at anomalies that exist right now on planet Earth, there are a lot of them, right? But one of them, I think, has to do with exactly what you said in data. Because right now, 
our data as people does not belong to us. Okay. Oh. It's utilized by the big tech companies, by different vendors that we use, by the banks. Well, they catch a lot with data, but think about Google. They know so much about us and Facebook as well. And they're making money off our own personal data. Okay. Now, the moment that you have your own token or your own ability to, I'd say, keep your data with you, you can actually theoretically have the right to choose who you want to sell your data to and what your price is. Okay. Because right now we're selling our data to Facebook and to Google for the price of the service that we're getting from them. Okay. Is that too cheap? Is that too expensive? Like what's the real price of my personal data, my thoughts, the things that I write, let's say on Facebook, are they worth more or less than the service that I'm getting from Facebook? That's a question, right? And I think that this anomaly, it's like, it's not balanced. Okay. And one of the directions that I think, first of all, blockchain itself and us that are in the sphere of talking about decentralization already know, I'm kind of like offering the rest of the people that have not yet thought about it, is to think about, this is my data. It's like my asset. How am I utilizing it and making money off my own data? And what price is my data worth? Maybe my data is worth more. Maybe that my aggregated data is worth much more than the service that I'm getting from Google or Facebook or the bank for that matter. Absolutely. People who spend more time on Facebook or people who are more influential and people who, you know, are more open, definitely their data is worth much more. So especially to advertisers, right? The more they know about you, the more. So absolutely, there needs to be a balance. And I know that there are quite a few people working on this. I'm hoping that soon we'll be able to do that. I don't mind selling my data, you know, make quite quite a good amount of money, I think. Yeah, I don't mind. I mean, we are selling it anyway. We're selling it for peanuts. Why don't we sell it for more than peanuts? Why don't we sell it for its real worth? I mean, how much is Google making off you, Yale? Yeah. Every time that somebody puts in Google questions about you or whatever that is, then there are ads that somebody had paid for. Okay. Yep. And Google is making the money for those ads. Theoretically, how much are they making off your name or my name? Yeah, absolutely. I would be happy to get that money myself. I would actually, I'd be happy to share it with Google, right? (laughs) I'm not saying give me a hundred percent. I mean, Google has a very important job to do, right? But something I'm supposed to be getting off those ads. I know, right? Well, there's another deep question there and, and the role of platforms that connect, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. it would never be possible if there were not a platform that kind of connects the buyers of products that Google ultimately is advertising and, of course, the sellers, right? So, and you know, they started out as just like a search engine and then migrated into a platform. And I've seen that happen countless times over. You know, I think that we are in the age of platforms. And I don't know if that age will ever end, right? What is out there after that? I think platforms or tech companies or tech giants, I think they're at the point where they have the ability to overtake countries. Uh I mean, the borders. Right. I'm even going to say it like this, okay? The rules of these conglomerates can override the rules of countries, okay? And, you know, without getting political or something, the moment that a technology company, Facebook or YouTube or Twitter can ban people from saying things, that's something that overrides the right of humans, let's say in America, to express their opinion, right? So what's the law? Okay. I mean, they're a private company. They can do anything they want. But the moment that they like ban, let's say that now it wasn't the governor of Florida, right? The moment that they say we can't People cannot talk about this. That means that they have a right that is stronger 
than the the right of governments of countries yeah so what's so what so that kind of like puts in question what's the role of the government in the country right, right. are they becoming obsolete is it going to be that we're going to have countries of facebook countries of twitter countries of whatever with their own little rules that override and this is especially relevant the moment that we understand that humanity is going into a digital era where you know once upon a time these things look like science fiction to see people living inside digitally but if you're looking at it that's where we're going i mean look at nfts right now did you see that a few months ago one of the nfts that was sold i think it was like for half a million dollars was a digital house that doesn't yeah. exist in the real world it's just a digital house yeah, that people can it. enter in vr okay so what does that mean i mean if people are going to be staying at home and this is also something that the pandemic kind of like pushed forward and they're going to be living their life digitally and then the laws are according to the digital platforms what does that make countries are they even relevant anymore Probably the laws not. of the country now are they you, relevant or not now you have decentralized platforms before we get into that i just want to say what the nft non fungible token basically a very popular construct of today where you can issue a token per one piece of art or per person or per house it's basically not non non fungible means it's not divisible you can't it's yeah one of them is not worth the other as opposed to let's say bitcoin one bitcoin is exactly the same value as a second bitcoin yeah. whereas nfts are tokens that have an intrinsic value of their own because it's based on something else that means that you could create an nft I think Christie's was a really interesting example that an NFT was created for a work of art. I think it was like a few tens of millions of dollars yep. for a digital piece of art. It doesn't even exist in the real world. And it was sold in an auction of an NFT. And that means that the NFT, it represents that digital piece of art. And let's say at Iconic, where I'm now COO, we're creating NFTs in the world of sports. Okay. And these NFTs can be anything starting from digital baseball cards. Okay. Yeah. That are only in the digital world. but they can also represent real world memorabilia let's say t-shirts that are signed by athletes okay and they're one of a kind that t-shirt is a collectible right and there's an nft a token that keeps track of who owns it and what that collectible is even though it's in the real world okay so that's one of the things that we're doing at iconic and i think you know if we're entering into nfts Yeah. We're not going by your questions, yeah. We're just having a conversation and jumping from one thing sure. to the oh, other. Is that okay? Good. That's perfect. So, back to your point about the platforms overtaking countries. Now platforms are becoming decentralized as well, right? So, that becomes a very big challenge for the regulators, right? That's another thing that you know like Where do you about. see that platforms are becoming decentralized? You have decentralized exchanges, that's number one. You have an exchange mm-hmm. where which can say I don't need to be compliant because I'm not even in charge of the code the code was created by a bunch of different people right by a community yeah. I don't need to actually have a broker dealer license why because there's people that are just connected to each other you know I'm just providing a space or basically a platform and the people come from one place they want to sell their tokens they have a token they want to sell it to someone else and this is yeah. just the place to be I didn't even write the code the people wrote yeah. the code you right. know So that's and who's in charge of it? Right, I know. I know that's a question. Yeah. So a few things about that point. First of all, I think that we are seeing decentralized platforms like you said in exchanges. We haven't yet seen I'd say a massive use case that comes and changes the giants, okay? There's no decentralized Twitter, Facebook, Google, Amazon yeah. or Microsoft. For that matter, yes, yet. Because I think that those are the players that are now creating coming to the point of become countries, okay? Yeah. Especially now that Facebook has its own token. <laughs> 
It's going to be the biggest central bank in the world. But let's zoom into, let's say, assuming that things become decentralized and where does the regulator fit in and where do regulatory, I'd say, requirements fit into that kind of scenario and how can they be implemented? And that kind of like brings us to a question about the role of the regulator around the world and how can they you know, keep up with the developments and the technologies and the different directions that things are going, okay? Because I think that I'm not jealous of the regulators. Their job is not easy. Okay. And I think that if we kind of like look back at the role of the regulator and why they were even introduced to the world and why these different laws were created in regards to finance, we understand that they happen because anomalies can happen in finance. Okay. And bubbles can be created. And when these kind of anomalies happen in finance, they can affect a lot of lives on the financial world. And everybody has money. And if we're looking at anomalies that happened in the subprime, it affected badly. So many people were hurt from it, right? And let's say if you're looking at anomalies that happened with trading where there was inside trading in stocks, okay, or with inside information, right? Or other stuff that happened with stocks. And then a few people made a lot of money off of that, but a lot of people lost a lot of money because it was kind of like fraudulent, right? So the regulators are kind of like in the position to kind of like stop the places where people can be cheating other people. Yeah, And that's an important role. It's not that we do not want the regulator. We want we the want. regulator. We want somebody. We don't want a wild west where people are cheating each other. And then some people are losing their assets and losing their houses and ruining their lives because somebody else has cheated. So first of all, I'd say that we want somebody to take to look over and make sure that anomalies are not happening. Okay, we want that somebody, the regulator, to be fair and to be looking at the interest of different peoples and especially the weaker people. Okay, like the private investor. Okay, so now the question is for the regulator to keep up. First of all, we all have an interest that they will keep up. Okay, we all have an interest that they will come and see that anomalies do not happen in decentralized exchanges as well. Right. It's our interest that you know what I'd say, take an even a worst use case. Okay. Talk about AI. Okay. When an AI is invented and artificial intelligence is invented, let's say for trading and it's creating an algorithm that can manipulate the markets because it's smart enough. Okay. Is that something we would want? No. Right. They can start. I read a case, like a projection where an AI can start a war because it would raise the prices of oil and benefit. You want a better case of that? Let's say an AI notices that if there's an accident in a flight company, then the stocks of all the other flight companies goes down or up, okay? And then the AI understands that what if it creates a situation where a plane goes down and falls, and before that, it buys shorts or extra on the stocks that would go up and down according to its prediction, okay? So what we'd have an AI that, you know, ruins the, I'd say the the technology inside a plane. So the plane goes down and then the price goes up and down and whoever uses that algorithm, what makes more money, okay? Now who's in charge of that algorithm? Who's in charge of that AI? Is the creator in charge of it? Who needs to be regulated when creating that kind of AI? And what if it's a super intelligent AI that knows how to breach into planes for that matter, okay? And this is not far-fetched. This is something that technologically could happen at some point. And these are kind of like questions that regulators need to be asking themselves, like who should be held in charge of a situation like that, right? So I think that all of these questions, and I'm circling back to decentralized exchanges, all of these questions, first of all, us as individuals would want somebody to take a look at that. Of course, there's a question of who do we want to take a look at that? And are they knowledgeable enough or understanding enough to come and tell us what we need to do? Okay. We also can, they, if it's a decentralized organization, 
which country yeah. is going to go and regulate them? Right. Like in right. traditional and, airspace, you know? Right. Yeah, I know. Zone. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this is a really important question. That's why I like working with regulators and kind of like I'd say helping them think about these different scenarios and what the meaning is, because what they regulate can affect, I think, I'd say the evolution in human finance. Okay. We're at the point now that I think that if we're looking at it from a historical perspective, you know, at the beginning people were bartering and then they used seashells and then they used gold or, and then they used country related, like you see an evolution. Like if you look at the timeline of 10,000 years of humanity and what we're seeing now is I think a next step in evolution of finance, right. And the regulators and the judges have such an important role in actually determining where humanity is going to continue going. And on the one hand, they don't want to stifle innovation because it is a natural thing that humans do, okay? They don't want to say, let's stop innovation and stop it right now because we understand how it works. They can't do that. But any regulatory rule that they put, or I'd say judges, when they give um, a ruling, what they're doing is actually creating the basis for the next steps in the evolution of finance. That's a really big responsibility. And that's one of the aspects that I love doing and working with these regulators and kind of like, thinking with them and judges, which way would it make sense to go? And like, let's look at the repercussions of your ruling or your regulatory environment. Let's in 10 steps of the checkmate, right? Where are you leading humanity in regards to finance with what you're saying and what you're writing right now? Yeah. So that's something you're doing as a mediator. and Also, so I'm doing it, I'd say with three hats. On the one hand, I'm educating the judges and the regulators. I do courses And I teach them about what's happening and I keep them updated. So let's say with the judges, I was working with the Israeli judges and I taught them about blockchain and digital currencies and what the different scenarios are. And for them to, first of all, understand what they're, you know, there are not a lot of cases happening right now in regards to this, right? But the more we have people using digital currencies and blockchain and the technologies, there are going to be disputes at some point that somebody feels that he was cheated by somebody else, right? We've seen this. We're seeing this in the news right now, right? And these cases are going to go and reach judges. And then the judges need to understand, you know, what they're ruling about, right? What are the repercussions of their ruling going to be for future cases in this same kind of subject? So yes, first of all, I'd say educating the regulators and the judges. On the other hand, I'm also mediating in these kinds of cases and trying to find the, I'd say, the solutions for these problems. And I think, first of all, that judges love this because then it kind of like, enables them not to take the responsibility of creating the future and it doesn't go into rulings that need to be followed afterwards, right? So it's kind of like delaying, like it's kind of like saying, okay, just a minute until the regulator comes and becomes more clear, why don't you do it as a mediator and find the solution between these two people without it necessarily being another block in building, you know, the regulatory environment of humans and finance, right? Wow, that's tough. That's tough. So I want to talk a little bit about your current position as a CEO at Iconic. What is Iconic and what do you love about working with Iconic? Okay. So first of all, yeah, I'm a COO. It's a technological company. It's one of the big ones that a lot of people here might have heard about is Bancor. I was their COO right after they deployed. I helped build their company from becoming, you know, they started out as 12 programmers. They raised quite a lot of funds in their crowd sale, which is actually kind of surprising for them. And they needed to become, I'd say, an established company fast. And when I came into Bancor, that was after being 15 years in Bank Lumi, out of which seven, seven of these years, I was the product manager and business development manager of Lumi Trade, one of the biggest security trading websites in Israel, which at the time when I was working there, 
received so many prizes of being one of the best, not only in Israel, like the best trading website or the best website in Israel, period, in all levels, but also abroad in Europe, we were chosen as one of the three best trading websites in Europe, alongside with Royal Bank of Scotland and Credit Suisse. So I was actually at the point where I was bringing innovation into established companies. And then when I left the bank about four and a half years ago, I was really fast kind of like introduced into blockchain and digital currencies because, you know, my background, I started out as a programmer in the dot-com era, and then I became an investment consultant. So I'm kind of like, I'm in fintech before it was called fintech. I'm in financial technology for like so many years before it was even, before it had a name, before it was a thing. And for me, you know, blockchain and digital currencies was so simple because, okay, it's another kind of database. It's decentralized. Great. It's just another kind of technology and computers, which I know since I was like, I was programming since the age of eight. So for me, it's just another kind of technology. And on the other hand, there's new kinds of assets. They just haven't yet been regulated. And it's a whole group of assets, right? You can do, you can start with utility tokens. You can start with something that looks like securities. You can have bonds. You can have digital assets of different kinds. And for me, it was really very simple to kind of like understand and wrap my mind around. Sure. Okay. So it's another type. So I was, first of all, the COO of Banker, and I helped build the company. And it was kind of like the other way around. Instead of bringing innovation into an established company, it was bringing organized methods of working into, I'd say, startups and technology companies that want to build a structured company. And that's the same thing that, and I've done this a few times, and now I'm doing it with Iconic. It's kind of like a COO for hire or something like that. But the role, that the part that I like the most is kind of like bringing structure into companies and having all of the procedures and the work and the most, I'd say, streamlined and I'd say the fastest way to do things, right? What's the most efficient way to do stuff in a company? So you don't waste your resources because startups don't, you know, don't necessarily have a lot of resources. So that's what, what I've been doing with Iconic as well. And Iconic is a very exciting company. It's in the field of fan engagement in sports and entertainment. It's not a blockchain company. It's a company in the real world. Our customers actually include over a hundred sports clubs around the world, including the EuroLeague, McLaren, Formula One, handball, cricket. We have another 80 big sports clubs around the world that are kind of like waiting to join our platform. We launched our beta version this Monday, actually, two days ago, right? Two, three days ago. And the idea of the company is that, you know, we went into the space of sports, which is kind of segregated and it's not digitalized. And you have on the one hand, the fans, on the one, on the other hand, you have the clubs themselves and there's no necessary interaction between them. And then you have the brands that are advertising. Now, if you look at this, I'd say sector sports, you see that nobody's kind of like talking efficiently with the other. Okay. Because the fans can't directly talk to the clubs and the clubs can't directly talk to the fans. And there's always a border in the middle of these. We said the platforms, right? So if a club wants to talk to its fans, it has to have some stuff on Instagram and other stuff on Facebook and other stuff on Twitter. And then they have their own website and they don't have the aggregated data of their fans, like where are they located? What would the fans buy from them straight away, right? How do I, like even selling tickets for games and matches is kind of difficult because you have all of these middlemen in the middle that are buying, let's say the club sells a ticket for 50 euros and then the fan needs to buy it for 500 because there are middlemen in the middle that buy these tickets and sell them for like 10 times the price. And all of these problems are, you know, from three directions. The fans, you know, when they want to see the club and they're, I don't know what, like they love um, handball and they want to see a Formula One games and they want to understand what's happening with their favorite team or idol in soccer or in basketball. They have to go to different places all the time. It's crazy. Yeah. So I kind of puts everything together. And our platform, actually, it's like, I'd say that the basic level of it is a social platform that allows the clubs to put in materials. Okay. And the data that like everything that they want to be putting out. And we're also taking things from their Facebook and Instagram. So that first of all, the clubs can put everything in the same place and get the data. Okay. On the other hand, the fans can see the different kinds of sports in the same place as well. And, you know, jump from one team to the other, see what's happening and interact straight away with their favorite clubs. 
Now, the third element of this is the brands, right? Coca-Cola, Airbnb, all of the different advertisers. So when the brands want to put advertisements like on the lead screens of stadiums, what's the ROI for that? How much of people watching that ad actually go and buy the Nike? Who knows? Who has the data, right? The moment that you have it in one app and you're seeing that in a certain match, you put Nike and then they go to the Nike store and they're buying Nike. You have that data. So everybody gets the data when it's in the same place. So anyway, what I'm saying is that the idea is to put everybody together and we're doing a really good job about it. So our our app was launched and we have 120 teams that are already putting stuff inside into this app. And you know that our beta launch, you know, usually beta apps have like a few thousand users. We have over 10,000 that enlisted for the day that the app came out. It's crazy. We needed to actually change our servers in order to hold all the amount of fans and people that like this project. So that's what Iconic does. It has, of course, the agreements that we have include selling the tickets and we're doing that like, you know, plane tickets that you have. It's on blockchain. It has QR codes and you know who the owner of the ticket is at every moment, like plane tickets, right? And when a person buys the ticket and then sells, it's kind of like chopped on how many percentage you can charge over what you bought, right? And we can keep track of who did that, right? So so we're kind of solving that problem. We're solving the data problem. We're solving the problem of being able to interact and give prizes from the clubs to their fans and the fans talking their favorite idols straight away without the connection. I'd say the tech giants in the middle, the different tech giants in the middle. Then we're doing it with partnership. That means that the clubs that are working with us are actually partners on the app. Do you think that with blockchain and tokenization, fans are going to be able to own their teams Theoretically, that is a direction that is not far-fetched, okay? I mean, if a club decides to create NFTs on players, on different stuff, or you know what? It's very interesting. Imagine an NFT of a collectible that was actually used on a game or something like that. The future incomes of a certain player. Those are things that technologically, they're possible. Yeah, I've seen several players tokenize their own income. Yeah, income. And I think, like you said, you know, fans love their clubs. I'm sure they would love to own a piece of a club or a play. Not own a player doesn't sound so good, but let's say... I know, it sounds really bad, actually. (laughs) Right? Contribute to the popularity and the livelihood of their player. They want to see them play more, right? So if they want to, let's say, a certain player to play for a certain team, they can raise money for that team to buy... Contract of that player. We're kind of creating the platform. These ideas are going to be things that the clubs themselves can do. Okay. And they kind of like, you know, it's like we're creating the, I'd say, the playground. And what's going to be happening there is going to be very interesting because it's going to be kind of like different ideas that are coming from the clubs themselves and the fans. And then the interaction can happen there. Yeah. So I I think it's really exciting times. You're empowering the fans. And a lot of definitely. Financial technologies, especially cryptocurrencies, are empowering individuals. And you finally see these individuals voting with their money. You know, beforehand, there are a lot of people who are still are unbanked, don't have access to, you know, a way to generate more income and so on. And now you finally see people be able to create something and vote and, you know, empower brands and power companies that they like, companies that are close to their values. I think we're living in the area of consumer-driven economies. I hope so. But, you know, for an iconic, we're not, like, I'd say our emphasis is not on voting and stuff like that. Our emphasis, yeah. our token is built in a different way, okay? Mm-hmm. What we created is actually, I think that this is an idea that can be utilized in different areas and different companies. The usage of our token is in regards to the whole fan engagement and loyalty points, 
Okay. Right. We kind of like recreated like the frequent flyer points of airlines and yeah. uh, credit cards into the token sphere. That means that people that buy the IQQ tokens are actually, when they stake them, the level of their, I'd say, membership in for loyalty points is different. Let's say they could be silver, they could be gold, they could be platinum, just like we know in flight points. But that depends on how much you're staking with. Are you taking mm-hmm. thousand tokens or 10,000 tokens or whatever that is? And then inside the system, you have loyalty points that kind of like, you know, if you're doing something and you're interacting and you're writing, let's say you're doing likes or you're writing on a post by a team, then you're getting rewarded for it which is something that kind of circles back to the idea that we were speaking about, you know, when I'm writing a post or I'm writing likes or something like that, why am I not rewarded for that on Facebook? Right. And and this is like, we're empowering you for doing the stuff that you are doing anyway, because you're important. Your likes and your comments create an ecosystem that has monetary value. Why are you not? Why should you not be rewarded for it? So I'm excited to have this part of kind of like building the backbone of this, I'd say the company itself and making it run smoothly in the background. The ideas are all the founder, Kazim Attila, that's the name of the CEO and the founder. All of these, everything is his idea. I'm doing the COO part of making sure that everything runs smoothly in the company. So it's an exciting project. And I like choosing the exciting projects, the ones where I think that, you know, the idea there has a lot to do with the way that I see things or where the future needs to go. And I try to help make them work. I love that. As possible. So Mirab, talking about countries and regulators, I wanted to hear your take on El Salvador becoming the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender. What does that really mean? And what does it mean for the world? First of all, this is a great kind of like question. And I think that all of us are asking ourselves this. And it's very interesting because it touches upon different areas that all of them need to be taken into account in order to think of where this is leading to. Okay. On the one hand, is Bitcoin with its volatility even fitting to become a tender, a currency? Like I wouldn't want to buy something with one Bitcoin and then have the value of it, you know, one day becoming a, the value of a pizza and the other day becoming the value of a helicopter. Okay. It doesn't make sense, right? I'm buying a, I don't know what a car. And then the day afterwards, the Bitcoin is not worth, you know, it's worth the difference. It's volatile. So I think that's the first question. And we all need to kind of keep that in mind. Is Bitcoin a real tender? Okay. Or is it an investment tool or what is it? Okay, or is this the currency that is the right one to become a tender? I don't know. Okay, so that's one point, and I'm gonna. Well, first of all, let's mention what it means to become a legal tender. Now, any shop in the country has to accept Bitcoin. Should be able to. I, I guess they yeah. might have given a deadline, but they should have some sort of a payment processing system which mm-hmm. actually accepts Bitcoin. I don't yeah. think it requires the shop to keep Bitcoin, right? So the shop can probably cash out of Bitcoin and put it in other currencies. Yeah, of course. Stuff, right? So there are yeah, companies yeah. like BitPay, you know, BitGo, yeah, all yeah, yeah. those, right? So, yeah, you know, but it's still a question. I mean, thinking about Bitcoin, when we're looking at tokens on general, then we can look at them as an investment tool or as something that you can pay with, okay? And I think that if you want a certain token to be I'd say utilized as a payment method, volatility is something that you don't want, okay? I mean, it doesn't make sense to use something that's as volatile as a payment source, right? It's like you're one day paying with diamonds and the other day you're paying with toilet paper. It doesn't make sense, okay, as a tender right now. So I think that it's kind of like premature to come and say that Bitcoin can be used as a tender and who is going to be paying for it with tech, with block, with Bitcoin itself. I don't know. But if I'm looking at, at the idea of it, 
okay, of, of enabling it as a legal tender that can be paid. First of all, we saw the first steps of this happening with PayPal a few months ago and with Square and Elon Musk with 140 tweets can, you know, take the price up and down. But we saw Bitcoin, I'd say, making steps into the traditional financial world and becoming a payment method, technologically at least, or ideologically. We've been seeing this, I think, since last November, right? It was November that PayPal and Square came out with the idea that you can pay with Bitcoin, right? It was somewhere around fall or winter of, of 2020. So first of all, I think this is the first time, though, that a government is actually doing it. And I think that it would have been really, really exciting if we'd have been seeing this happen with a government that is, I'd say, more mainstream, okay? I mean, if the United States or England or France would come and say, you know, Bitcoin is now a legal tender, then I think that we could have been saying that we're seeing the entrance of Bitcoin into the financial ecosystem in a more dramatic way. Right now, El Salvador being the first to do it, kind of like, I'd say, strengthens the bodies that are against Bitcoin, okay? Because again, for them, it looks like, oh, look who's doing it. It's El Salvador that has so much trouble inside anyway. So maybe that does mean that Bitcoin is a token that is used for bad things, right? Because you can hear that happening around the world, right? The people that are against Bitcoin, that's what they're saying. Bitcoin allows doing bad stuff and laundering money and blah, 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 all the rest of the stuff that they're saying about Bitcoin. And then having it connected to El Salvador is kind of like helps them in that direction, which I don't know us as people that are looking at where we want the digital currencies to go into and we want them kind of like to, to be seeing them integrate in an organized way into the traditional finance or even taking over it right i don't know if we want that or not right is yeah. that a good thing is that a bad thing i don't know where is this leading to i don't know maybe it's actually going to be a trigger that takes other governments to say no bitcoin at all and look what china did that's what china said no bitcoin you're not playing with that thing anymore it's illegal okay yeah. so saying that el salvador is going to enable more usage of Bitcoin or blocking Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't know which way it's going to go. What are the regulators going to be doing about it? Right. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting take. <laughs> I haven't frankly even thought about it. So let's switch gears here a little bit. You were chosen twice for women in FinTech power list by Innovative Finance UK and Israel. You're also Israel's ambassador to EWPN. So yeah. talk to me about just being a woman in fintech and perhaps some words of wisdom to any other women who want to get to that level in the space where there's not a lot of us, unfortunately. Okay. So, well, I'm a geek. Okay. I'm a geek in the, I'd say the classic kind of geekiness. I said, I started programming at the age of eight. Okay. I continued programming throughout high school. It was what I majored in. I love programming. I love Star Wars. I love everything geeky. I have glasses. And then I got into the area of finance, which is amazing. Okay. And trading stocks and investments and everything that has to do with them, with what you do with your money and where that, you know, what you can do with investments. And it's funny because for me, I'm so used to being surrounded all the time by boys, you know, who was in tech forever and ever boys and who's in finance, who are the brokers? Okay. Who are the investors? Do you know that when I was in Lumitrade, one of the things that I loved doing was every time we came up with a new module, when I was a product manager, every time we came up with an idea for a new module or something to do with, you know, enhancing our website, I would actually call one by one, our major users on that module. Let's say we were doing bonds. I would call the people that I took the data of who was the most traders in bonds. And I would actually call them up and say, hi, this is me, Ross speaking from Lumitrade. And we're thinking about doing, you know, something with bonds. Would you like this? Would you not like this? And 98% of the phone calls would be men. And if a woman would answer my phone call, she would always say, wait, that's my husband. Talk to him. 
It was so discouraging. And, you know, when I finally would find that one phone call in a hundred that a woman would answer me and say, okay, yeah, what would you like to ask? I'm like, oh my God, another woman investor. It's so exciting. Okay. So now take these two things and combine them together and you get like, you know, remember the Venn diagram, you have all of this is men and all of this is men. And then you just kind of like try to find the women in both of them. And it's crazy. Okay. I had lectures. I have lectures where I'm standing in front of an audience of 400, 500 people. And there are three women there. Okay. Now it's really hard to say what's the egg and what's the chicken here. Okay. And for me, it seemed natural until I didn't even notice it because I knew that I was playing in fields that were, were interesting for me and for other men, sadly enough. But I think that at some point it kind of like started bothering me. And I was asking myself, because these are very lucrative fields. Finance is a lucrative field and technology is a lucrative field. The salaries in these fields is like almost twice the salary in other fields where women dominate them. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that right now we're in a point of time that nobody really kind of like is a veteran in the fields of fintech and blockchain. Everybody here is new because it's a new technology. Yeah, we love the playing field. Exactly. So I think that this is a historical time where women can come and say, you know what, if there's new entrants anyway, why don't I enter? Why don't women enter? You know, and finance has been dominated and technology has been dominated by men for so many centuries. Why? I mean, you know, women are smart. They're intelligent. They're good. They can see things in so many different levels. And this is not me talking as a personal person. Read read research about it. They're good managers. They see things differently than what men see. You want that ability to have different people with different perspectives come into the playing field where it could bring new ideas and new ways of playing, right? We want that as humanity. We want to include this 50% of humanity that has a different perspective about things. It's good. We know that innovation comes from people thinking in different ways, put together in the same room and creating the future, right? So when I think about this, I'm like, so pro women come and learn, you know, come and join the courses that I do. Come and ask me questions. Ask me on my email, on my WhatsApp, contact me. I'm here. I love, you know, sharing the knowledge and sharing my ideas. I love doing it. And you can enter into this wonderful field that is now being created. All these questions that we asked ourselves, what should the regulator do? What should money do? What's happening with data? Are questions that everybody's playing with them right now? I would love to hear the take of women on these things. I'd love to hear them. I'd love to see their ideas. I'd love to see them being the ones pushing it forward. Absolutely. Okay? And maybe we'll see when maybe we will be seeing a new kind of finance that has a better sustainability and better inclusion. Okay. And now is the time for women to do that. And, you know, I have so many people coming and asking me for advice as a personal advisor, right? And men are so easy that they come and say, I'm paying you for your hourly rate. Teach me about blockchain. And they're willing to pay even $1,000 for it for that hour of teaching them and downloading what I have in my brain into them. I want to see women doing that. And I won't even charge that much for women. Okay. Just, you know, come to me and I will happily teach you. Come, you know, join my lectures, join whatever it is and learn. And you can enter this field and give what you have to give because women have so much to give. Absolutely. So that's kind of like me talking passionately about women. So, Well, I appreciate that. And that's why I asked the question. I knew something good would come out of it. I hope everybody jumps on this opportunity to talk to Mirav. She's available on social media and is eager to teach. So thank yeah, you for joining me on the it's blog. It's my pleasure. Yeah. And I love seeing what you're doing. I, you know, we kind of like spoke before the recording and I love seeing what your project does and the new direction with digital assets. I love the idea of creating new asset classes that can enable so many new things that it's exciting. And I extra, extra love seeing women 
leading these things. And you and I were both in the list of the 100 most influential women in blockchain in the world. So it's an honor talking to you and it's a pleasure, you know, sharing ideas and following your career path. It's amazing. Thanks, Mirav. I appreciate it. So thanks for being on the Black Solid podcast. My pleasure. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or by visiting our website at solidblock.co/podcast. If anybody here enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review and spread the word. And see you soon, Mirav. We'll talk for See you soon. Yeah, we're going to meet on the next conference. All right. See you. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Take care. Bye.